Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, today's episode is for uh, people who love Team USA only. Yeah. So if you're the 45th president of the United States or one of the uh, uh, assembled MAGA Aryan youths he spoke to on Saturday who booed the women's soccer team, we need you to log off, delete the episode. Hit up the Russian Olympic Committee. Yeah, the uh, Rock. Podcast. The Rock podcast. <laughs> the yeah, Rock yeah, is yeah. ready for yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah, they, we got a team for you. Get yeah. the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, we we yeah. don't want you on this show. Uh, but for those of you who love America, we have a, a fantastic show here. Lots of jingoism, as you just heard. We will also cover some international legal trouble for the former chair of Trump's inaugural committee. Mm. The Iraqi prime minister visited Joe Biden in the Oval Office. We'll talk about some of the announcements out of that. Why people are flipping out about Ben and Jerry's ice cream in the most exhausting way possible. Mm-hmm. We have a special oh, committee. Jerry Garcia, yeah. Jerry Garcia, chunky yep. monkey. <laughs> Xi Jinping visited Tibet. People are manipulating the weather. Playing God, if you ask me. And then we have lots of fun Olympic news. And then our guest today is Fadal Alariza. He's a fantastic journalist in Tunisia who's covering the recent political machinations that some people are calling a coup. We talk about why people are protesting, uh, what folks make of the Tunisian president's decision to fire the prime minister, dissolve parliament, and generally uh, kind of take over a little bit. Yeah, so stick concerning. around for that. Yeah. Good episode. God, this is good. We got a lot going on, Ben. topics, yeah. Want to start with something cathartic? Yeah, let's do it. Tom Barrick. Yes. Not, yes. A, not, not, not good. Not good. Fresh legal trouble. Not in surprising, Trump world. but not good. Yeah, this isn't any of that dated, you know, impeachment legal trouble. This yeah. is fresh, <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> right yeah, off yeah. the vine legal trouble um, with an international flavor. So it works for us. Uh, so Tom Barrack is a former chair of Trump's inaugural committee. He was charged with illegally lobbying the Trump campaign and the Trump administration on behalf of the United Arab Emirates. Barrack was also charged with obstruction of justice and making false statements to the FBI. It's bad. The gist of the legal problem for Tom Barrick is that you are allowed to lobby on behalf of a foreign government like the UAE, but you have to register first as a foreign agent with the Department of Justice or else you get in big trouble. And it sounds like uh, Barrick didn't do that. And then he put a lot of his work in text pen, uh, text emails. They all found their way to prosecutors. I think the one you liked the best was I nailed it for the home team. I yeah, think. yes, yes. Well, I mean, there's a theme here, right? Which is these guys, you know, Trump and his cronies, you know, wrapped themselves in uh, America first, uh, you know, neo-fascist rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, yet they root against America's sports teams. The home team is the Emiratis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they're consistently working uh, on behalf of foreign interests. I, I mean, I think here, the couple of things that jumped out at me, first of all, like the scale of this, right? There, there are a bunch of FARA cases where people are doing stuff and they don't register and that's As far bad. as the Foreign Fine. Agent Registration Act. Exactly, right? But this was like, this guy was inserting language into Trump's speeches. Yep. He was kind of boasting about his advocacy for 
villain of the pod, Mike Pompeo, like mm-hmm. getting in there, friend of the Emiratis. You know, he he was, you know, we talked on the on the podcast at the beginning of the Trump administration. If you took a list of things that the Emiratis would want from the United States government, mm-hmm. that was basically what the Trump foreign policy was. Yeah, they were right? blockading Qatar for so a So they while. blockaded Qatar. They embraced Mohammed bin Salman. The first overseas trip by Donald Trump, the president of the United States, was to Saudi Arabia. They embraced Sisi, Trump's favorite dictator in Egypt. They subsequently backed up Mohammed bin Salman after the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi. All the insane things are happening in the Gulf, like the Lebanese prime minister being taken oh, right. hostage. You know, I often forget about that. They that escalated was support for the war bad. in Yemen yeah. with the Saudis and Emirates. So it was literally the foreign policy was kind of subcontracted out to Abu Dhabi and Riyadh. And clearly part of the reason why was not Donald Trump's kind of longstanding expertise on Middle East issues. No. Clearly it was an effort to kind of curry favor with the Gulf autocrats who have a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. And so to me, the, the two issues that demand further exploration here are who else was on the take here? I mean, again, Jared Kushner, as we know, was WhatsApp buddies with all these guys in the Gulf, right? Yeah. Like what promises were being made, what real estate investments were being made. This really does merit further investigation because it feels like the evidence is hiding in plain sight that the entire foreign policy of the United States was kind of corrupted. Oh, never mind the withdrawal from the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal that the Emiratis and Saudis didn't like, you know? Yeah, yeah. and also, like, so I was talking to someone uh, who used to work at DOJ about this. It wasn't clear in any of the charging documents but what the payment was to Barrick. Tom Barrick, by the way, is a billionaire, right? And, and made, though, gobs of money in the Emirates, right? So it was probably, like, like yeah. investments, right? It, yes. He was hoping to get payoffs. So again, I, I nailed it for the home team. That was a quote when he read a bunch of UAE-provided talking points in a, in a TV interview. He also apparently pushed for himself to be the U.S. ambassador to the UAE or yeah. special envoy to the region. He pleaded, he pleaded innocent, uh, but was freed from jail after paying a $250 million bond. So mm. they were really worried that this yeah. guy's like, got a private jet, got a bunch of buddies in non-extradition countries. Like, we may never see him again. I guess yeah. there were two other guys charged. One fled the country in 2018 after his interview with law enforcement. It hasn't been seen again. So Barrick must have known this was coming. I mean... Like, do you, I guess that's my question to you, Ben. Like, do you think Barrick was the UAE's ace in the hole or like, is this the tip of the iceberg? No, that's the thing. So not only is there the question of like, just whether there was other, you know, illegal activity in terms of corruption, but, you know, one of the interesting things about the story is you saw a bunch of people dunking on Barrick and maybe people taking shots at Trump. What about the conversation about the extent of the influence that the UAE has in Washington? Mm -hmm. (laughs) There was a lot of noticeable silence on that Mm -hmm. because it is an incredibly far-reaching influence operation that this relatively small country runs in Washington on a regular basis. They pour money into think tanks. They pour money into lobbying. They, They pour money into speaking engagements for former officials who might be future officials. They pour money, obviously, into buying weapons, and then the defense contractors are kind of in the pocket of the Gulf and advocate for their interests. And and some of this is legal, right? It's not illegal to do a bunch of the stuff I just said. But I felt when I was in government, like there was something gross about this. I remember, for instance, like I used to constantly detect the Emirati line criticizing our foreign policy um, in in the media and in Mm -hmm. the kind of think tank industry. And then you'd read in certain publications, you know, spotted at the lavish Wolfgang Puck as the chef 
party at the Emirati ambassador's residence. And then there's a list of like everybody who was trashing us, right? That is like, that <laughs> like, is verbatim, by the way. It was like always Wolfgang Puck. No, it was always, yeah. It, it, and, and, and so it's, literally- Because a sense of the money. Yeah, like you have like, you know, journalists or think tankers or former officials or members of Congress, like rubbing elbows, parting it up, you know, yeah. with the this kind of opulence, right? Uh, that is funded by uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis. And, you know, like this was like a real problem for us. And like, I couldn't, I couldn't like, even with the megaphone of the White House, I couldn't compete with the megaphone that like the UAE had in Washington. And and this is like, like the, the least well-kept secret in Washington here. So it's, it's not just Barrack. And, and I, I should say, it's not just the illegal activity that he was engaged in. Why is there so much influence from basically autocratic countries that don't, necessarily have the same interests that that we have, you yep. know? Um, and they've spent a lot of time and a lot of money convincing everybody that that we do have the same interests, that somehow we need to have tens of thousands of troops to counter Iran and that region and all this stuff. Like, uh, you know, hopefully, and I do, I'm not that hopeful, but I, I, would, I would like to think that pulling the thread on this case and others might at least force a reckoning and at least a greater degree of self-awareness of the fact that because, you know, the funny thing is the Emiratis, in a weird way, I don't blame them. Like, why wouldn't they do this? You know, like, sure, like yeah. they, they're good at what they do. This is how they right? think yeah, business they, is done. This is how they do business. It's yeah. not, in a weird way, it's not like their fault. We even have to though, police ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Like, we have to be mindful that if somebody is spending this much time, effort, and money to try to persuade you to do what they want you to do, that the that's an influence operation, right. <laughs> not necessarily, you know, d- you know, the, what's in the best interest of the United States. We'll see how this plays out. Really rich guys tend to get off on these charges. Fair is a weird law. It's inconsistently enforced. It's kind of confusing. So I don't know how it'll play out, but it was instructive to learn all the things he was deeply involved in at the different moments along the way. And it does. And I, it does connect to what you're going to talk about later in the pod on Tunisia. Like we know for a fact that the Saudis and Emiratis, because they were very open about it, helped subsidize the coup that brought Sisi back into power in Mm -hmm. Egypt. And there's a lot of indications that the Saudis and Emiratis are very supportive of what's happening in Tunisia now. Yeah, I asked about that. Their bots are active and all this stuff. And and so this this is like, you know, if you care about democracy, um, these aren't just countries that are autocratic in their own countries. They have been subsidizing autocracy across like a pretty broad swath of territory um, in the Middle East and North Africa. Yeah, let's stay in the Middle East uh, and turn to Iraq because on Monday, President Biden met with Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadimi in the Oval Office. They laid out a plan to shift the U.S. military mission in Iraq from some combat role to an entirely advisory and training role by the end of 2021. Uh, The U.S. currently has about 2,500 troops in Iraq. It seems like that number won't change much. There were some initial reports uh, out of Iraq that made it sound like the prime minister might come to Washington and demand that all U.S. troops go home. I think that was a bit of a garble. It was more about like defining what they do there. Uh, Ben, you know, back in 2011, you remember this well, President Obama declared the end to the combat mission in Iraq before having to send troops back in in 2014 to deal with ISIS. How significant do you think this announcement is that like the mission is shifting just formally to the training role? Uh, On the one hand, it's kind of an indication of where we are in the ISIS campaign, right? That there's not a feeling that there's such a threat from ISIS that U.S. troops, U.S. special forces kind of need to be out there engaged in combat operations. Um, so that's a p- 
positive That's sign, good. right? That the security situation has improved there. Um, I don't know if the troops are basically just staying there and they're kind of on bases. Um, you know, that, that it's not like a, a seismic shift or anything. But I, I think what it does point to is, um, and, you know, you look at Afghanistan by contrast, right? And how mm-hmm. bad it looks there. You know, Iraq has a lot of problems, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of Iranian influence and a lot of intercommunal rivalry. And, you know, some questions about, you know, how democratic the government is. But, you know, there's there's some signs of progress and stabilization taking place there. And and the hope is that that over time that can lead to Iraq evolving into a more normal country, which it hasn't been since the U.S. invasion. So I think this is like a a, a, you know, a sign of of modest progress, and and hopefully, you know, we can build on that with the Iraqis and other countries that support Iraq to to you know finally try to have this country emerge from what has been a pretty awful decade plus. Yeah, truly awful. Um, okay, Ben. Uh, unfortunately, now we have to talk about ice cream. Uh, I did not want to talk about this, um, but here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Uh, yeah, so, I, I wrote and deleted a lot of tweets about this. Yeah, it's just, yeah. anyway. So here's the backstory. <laughs> Last week, Ben & Jerry's, yes, the ice cream company, they announced that they would no longer sell their products in the occupied West Bank because the company felt that doing so was inconsistent with its values and support for social justice movements. The ice cream will still be available in Israel. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous even saying this out loud. Yeah. The, the ice, ice cream, cream will still be yeah. available <laughs> in Israel proper, but Ben & Jerry's will not sell their products in the West Bank, presumably parts of East Jerusalem, Gaza, the Golan Heights, you might hear this and think, uh, good for them. That's a small but principled stand for an ice cream company. You might think, I don't give a shit. It's ice cream. Uh, I'm guessing you didn't hear this lay down and think any of these quotes. Uh, Ben and Jerry's quote, has decided to brand itself as the anti-Israel ice cream, or that the decision was, quote, a new form of terror, or that this was, quote, a shameful surrender to anti-Semitism. Those are quotes from the Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, uh, President Isaac Herzog, and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, the moderate, uh, describing Ben and Jerry's decision. Many of them tried to link it to the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, because, you know, I guess it sounds boycott-like, although it's not really. Uh, ironically, several Israeli politicians, including disgraced former Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, called for a boycott of Ben & Jerry's products, so whatever. Republican U.S. Senator James Langford of Oklahoma even called on his state to block the sale of all Ben & Jerry's. So Ben, like, <laughs> I, this insane overreaction is why neither of us, I think, wanted to deal with this. Yeah, it it yeah. took less than a week to go from, like, sales of ice cream uh, to, uh, you know, a company founded by two Jewish men being potentially banned from Oklahoma. So <laughs> in summary, like what these guys did is not BDS. I, I have no idea if ice cream sales will help the Palestinian cause. <laughs> right before we started recording, uh, I read a story that said the Israeli government has formed a special task force to pressure Ben and Jerry's to reverse their decision. I, I guess like what they're doing maybe is trying to make this as painful as possible for for. Ben and Jerry's and intimidate other countries from companies, I mean, from following suit. I don't know. What did you make of this? First of all, the Israeli government's response is kind of telling on itself because they're saying, Ben and Jerry's, that they're not going to sell ice cream in Israeli settlements in illegally occupied Palestinian territories under international law. Um, The 
Israeli government, not Ben and Jerry's, is the one that's saying this is a boycott of all of Israel. They're, they're basically saying that all of the settlements are part of Israel, right? So that is problematic, to say the yeah, least. There's some logical right? challenges because there. The logic train then suggests that, okay, therefore you're kind of de facto annexing all of the Palestinian territory by saying that if someone refuses to sell ice cream there, they're refusing to sell it in Israel proper. That, to me, kind of reveals the fundamental tension here, right? Which is that Israel wants to be viewed as a full democracy while also wanting to have the capacity to indefinitely rule, govern, have authority over the Palestinians, right? So that there's that problem, right? Then there's this question of the insanity of mounting a maximum pressure campaign. <laughs> Which is, uh, <laughs> Ben is quoting from an Axios headline. Yes. Scoop Israel launches maximum pressure campaign against Ben and Jerry's. Now that may be tongue in cheek, but uh, it is the language normally reserved for Iran. <laughs> well, and, and Lapid uh, said something along the lines of, you know, there's all these states that have passed BDS laws and I'm going to call on all of them to go after right. Ben and Jerry's, right? And, and you know, what, what is this really about? I mean, I remember when at the end of the Obama administration, we abstained on a UN Security Council resolution condemning Israeli, continued Israeli settlements. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, like Israel went like completely nuclear, you know, and, and they, they concocted, you know, conspiracy theories about information they had about what we were doing behind the scenes to do this. And they attacked, you know, people like me who like were out being spokespeople for these decisions, even though it was like, the end of the Obama administration, Trump was coming in, Trump was already embracing them. This resolution was not going to change anything, right? No, um, and, and, and a friend of mine who's a very smart and astute analyst on Israeli uh, policy said to me, you have to understand the Israeli mindset of deterrence, right? And I always thought this was like a really interesting comment. He's like, everything that they do is meant to kind of have maximum deterrent, right? Yeah, so Raise the cost on you personally. So, yeah, so if you look at, you know, the most extreme version militarily, like the Gaza war seems, all these Gaza wars seem excessive. You know, like it seems like, why do they have to destroy all of this infrastructure um, to, to, to get at Hamas? Well, it's to impose the maximum cost on a whole range of people, including innocent civilians to kind of send the message. It's not worth, you know, uh, opposing us militarily, which again, that's like a, you know, that's like a conventional, um, your military deterrent strategy. It's not totally you know, no. out of left field. However, what's interesting about Israel is they do the same thing kind of diplomatically in American politics if they sense some threat, right? So what they see is there's a growing movement on the left in this country to question U.S. support for the Israeli government, to question why you know certain businesses are operating in Israeli settlements, for instance, and so what they're going to do is they're going to take one brand that everybody's heard of yeah, and that everybody up. already thinks of as kind of lefty, right? I mean, example. It's Ben and Jerry's. Like a couple of hippie guys yeah, like, fish food. had a great idea out in Vermont. And like, you know, I've been to the factory. It's Didn't good they stuff. support Bernie too? They're, they're, they yeah. sort of support Bernie. They're, they're, they're deadheads. Like there's tie-dye, like Who the whole thing. Us? So everybody kind of already thinks of these guys as right. kind of lefties. Right. And Although so they what, sold to Unilever in like the 80s. Yeah. So it's like that's a corporate conglomerate. Yeah, now it is. Yeah, yeah. But like, you know. The, no, no, the, totally. The, the ethos of the company. And so they're just going to nuke these people like to send a deterrent message to any other company or person who might consider having an opinion on these things that we're going to make it so awful for you. 
and, and look, the, in looking at it, the judgment is, okay, that might be very effective or it might invite a backlash, yeah. you know? And I think it's actually probably effective, you know? Um, but I also think that the facts on the ground, as we've talked about, are it's becoming increasingly obvious that Israel has no interest in a two-state solution. And so they keep trying to make the conversation about anything other than what are the circumstances for the Palestinians in East Jerusalem, in Gaza, in the West Bank. If the conversation is about that, um, that's a very awkward conversation for them. If the conversation is about BDS, um, or frankly, if they're kind of tarring anybody who opposes them as anti-Semites, like that's right a different conversation I, I look i totally agree i'm sure there's boardrooms who might be considering a similar decision or a course of action who think man that's a lot of smoke i don't want to deal with that but to be clear this is not bds this is not a new form of terror this is not anti-semitism no. it's ice cream it's also kind of an it's ice cream it's offensive to what like i mean victims of terrorism well, it's right? also, yeah, like, it's a, there's a boy who cried wolf thing here it's like anti-semitism is a real problem in the world terrorism is a real problem in the world yeah. ice cream is not that yeah. No. And, well, that's the thing is anti-Semitism. I, I honestly like this makes it harder um, to 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 focus in on the very virulent and problematic anti-Semitism on the right and uh, elements of the left these days. Totally. If you're saying that Ben and Jerry's, you know, not selling some ice cream in a West Bank settlement is anti-Semitism. I can't get half baked in my kibbutz. Like, and, give me a break. And and here's the thing that bothers me about this, and, and it bothers me with how broad they paint this you know, a BDS movement with it. Like, I don't like anybody trying to force Americans or anybody else for that matter to self-censor. You know, it's in the same way that I I, I don't like, you know, China trying to tell the NBA they can't have an opinion about Hong Kong. I don't like the Israeli government trying to tell Ben and Jerry's they can't have an opinion about selling ice cream in the West Bank. Like, like, we should be able to make our own decisions about what we buy and where we sell things and what we say about stuff. It does have that feeling that like sort of like maximalist, we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks uh, vibe that we saw with China and the NBA. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, you better just shut up about anything having to do with, again, not just what's happening in Israel. This is not about what's happening in Israel. This is about what's happening in in the Palestinian territories, in, 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 in Israeli settlements deep into the West Bank. I mean, what, what they... Is it really is it really such an Israeli national interest that that Cherry Garcia be available to settlers? Like I, I don't I don't think so. If I were their political strategist, I would say uh, take a couple pitches. Yeah, you know you don't yeah. always have to swing. For yeah. God's sake, it's fucking yeah. ice cream. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. 
Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. So last week, President Xi Jinping of China became the first Chinese leader to visit Tibet in 30 years. The occasion, a happy one, was to mark the 70th anniversary of China invading and occupying Tibet. So I'm sure they were thrilled to see him. Uh, according to Chinese state media, she told local officials to push Tibetans to identify more with the, quote, great motherland, Chinese people, Chinese culture, and Chinese Communist Party and socialism with Chinese characteristics. He also reportedly said that rejuvenation of the Chinese nation will only occur when people follow the party. Uh, she visited some cultural and religious sites, which is odd since the Chinese Communist Party is not usually a big fan of those kinds of things. No. Uh, Tibet has been under the control of the Chinese Communist Party since 1951. Not invited to meet with Xi was the leader of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, who is in exile and called a dangerous separatist by the Chinese government. This is Xi's third visit to Tibet in his career. I think he went in the 80s. He went a couple of years ago when he was vice president. Ben, what did you make of this? I just, I didn't know what to make of it beyond to feel like it was kind of ominous given the ongoing cultural genocide happening to the Uyghurs. But I don't know, what was your take? I mean, I, I think that Xi has been, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party's spent many years, decades, you know, trying to repopulate Tibet with more Han Chinese, mm -hmm. trying to 
discredit the Dalai Lama, some kind of terrorist separatist, uh, trying to claim that they have the right to determine who the next Dalai Lama is, trying to eradicate the the kind of cultural and linguistic and religious traditions of the Tibetan people. Like this was kind of before Hong Kong and before Xinjiang and, and the Uyghur situation. This was the first, you know, one of the first areas where you saw them trying to kind of impose a uniform identity on territory where there were, you know, ethnic and religious groups that believed different things and spoke different language and had different traditions. And and to me, I think what's, you know, particularly eerie, concerning about this visit at this time, when you see China being much more aggressive, um, the Chinese Communist Party, that is, you know, is like you look at what's happening in Xinjiang, you look at what's happening in Hong Kong, and then you look at Taiwan, yep. you know, and the message consistently, right, is like we are going to determine everything that happens in the space that we claim as part of China. Um, and, you know, we don't care about international opinion. Oh, by the way, in Tibet, they have basically silenced. Remember, there used to be like a whole movement around Tibetan freedom concerts. Like yeah, you, you and I are Tibet. old enough yeah, to yeah. remember like the Beastie Boys. Stickers and, on cars. You know, yeah. And the Dalai Lama was an icon. Well, you know, they've kind of snuffed that out. Like nobody really raises Tibetan human rights anymore. And the Dalai Lama is very old and doesn't have the same cachet in part because they've bullied people into no longer meeting with the Dalai Lama. And so I think, you know, the example of Tibet Unfortunately, it's an example of what they would like to see happen in a lot of other places, including Hong Kong and Taiwan. And it, it, at a certain point, you know, uh, the question is, in, in Taiwan, is that going to cause a conflict? And mm -hmm. in Hong Kong, how far are they going to go? Um, and they've already suggested that they're going to go as far as they've gone everywhere else, you know? Yeah. Uh, let's do a good news story in terms of a political transition and close the loop on a political crisis in Samoa that had been basically gripping the country since May. So here's the good news. Fiume Naomi Mataafa will be sworn in as Samoa's first female prime minister. She won the election back in like April, but the ruling party, the guys she beat, did everything possible to keep her from taking office, including locking the doors of the parliament and denying her entry into the building on the days she was supposed to be sworn in. They did this kind of ad hoc swearing-in ceremony on the lawn. The crisis finally ended when uh, a Samoan court of appeals told them basically to cut the shit and let her formally take over the government this week. Um, interestingly, Ben, one of the first moves she will make is to kill a Chinese-backed port development project that costs like $100 million. So I'm sure Beijing is not thrilled about that. I wonder if they'll start sounding off, but you know, some good news here. Yeah. I mean, the stop the steal movement in Samoa didn't, <laughs> uh, didn't, didn't go all the way. No, it didn't pan out. And look, this is going to continue to, you know, we mentioned this before, but this can be characteristic of these small Pacific Island nations where China wants to throw some money around and then have a total say in their politics. And you know, they're going to be kind of caught in between this U.S.-China uh, geopolitical rivalry. And what you just hope is that, that in, as in this case, they can make their own decisions and that the rule of law can hold. So positive story here for, for Samoans. Um, and, but it's going to, you know, it's not the end of the story. It's going to continue to be a challenge. I'm sure China's not going to end its effort to try to exert influence in this area. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Okay, well, now I'll do a little more positive, a little positive spin for the UAE here, because I don't know if you saw this story, but scientists in the UAE have literally figured out how to make it rain. They fly well, drones. Well, they already make it rain. I mean, yeah. Tom Barrick. Tom Barrick, yeah. They fly drones into clouds. 
the drones release some sort of electrical charge, which makes it rain, uh, which is pretty cool. Sounds a bit like playing God, but it's pretty cool and could be important for a country like the UAE that faces a severe drought yeah. in the middle of a desert, sinking water tables. Uh, I guess there's similar cloud seeding technology that's used to make it snow in some Western states, though it's it's a different technology that basically they sprinkle like dry ice into these clouds to try yeah. to make it snow. Not clear if it's all that effective. I don't know. I guess I'm just happy to see one of the craziest government conspiracy theories come true that we can control the weather. I mean, that's yeah. not every day. I, I, you know, and again, you know, the Emirates, uh, you know, we, we've criticized them. I mean, they, they, they have definitely been at the tip of the spear of a lot of innovation too. Here's the, I'll be the, the, you know, the cloud and the, mm. <laughs> um, I, cause I've been, I've been like, particularly terrified of climate change recently. Oh, um, yeah. All day, every day. And uh, I was, you know, uh, looking into some of these efforts to affect the weather, right? And I think in in Russia, for instance, they're doing the same thing to make it rain to kind of put out some fires and things like that. And one of the challenges that might emerge is as individual nations get this capacity to control the weather and understandably use it, right, to, to you know, to deal with drought or what have you or put out fires, I don't think there's a full understanding of how that affects kind of broader weather patterns. Yeah. Because like the weather doesn't tend Stealing to recognize national boundaries, you know? Um, and so there has to, is another area where there's going to have to be international co- cooperation uh, for these kind of weather altering technologies so that like one country isn't, you know, inadvertently or intentionally screwing another. But but for the time being, welcome the innovation. Clearly, we're going to need all of it to deal with climate change, but we're also going to need to make sure that it's not compounding other problems. Yeah, no, uh, controlling the weather, what could go wrong? Uh, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole in this, and I guess the military, the U.S. military, experimented with weather as a weapon in Vietnam. They wanted to make it rain to screw with supply routes. I'm not sure that would have worked. Uh, And then in 1977, there was a treaty banning the use of weather modification for military purposes. So the more you know. So, you know, there you go. I mean, because with climate, you know, the the models are right in terms of what they're predicting in terms of the warming of the planet. But where the models seem to have underappreciated the effects of climate change is on how the, the weather patterns could be affected in ways that could lead to more extreme weather events. Yep. You know? Yeah, um, like the flooding we saw in China. Yeah. I mean, I didn't put that in the show because it was really hard to figure out what the real numbers even are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just astonishing. Astonishing floods. Uh, okay, Ben, so we're going to transition to our uh, Olympic segment here. I want to make sure you saw that I'm 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 now an Everton football fan, an EPL fan, thanks to Roger Bennett. So a friend of the pod, Michael O'Neill, sent me a, uh, a random box of swag, including this mug. So here we are. Thank you, Michael. Nice. Shout out. Uh, Olympics. Lots of news this week. First question. What's your favorite thing you watched? Um, I have to say, like, the Olympic watching experience has been transformed somewhat by having kids. And it's very cool Mm -hmm. to have kids and, like, be introducing them to the Olympics for the first time. So me personally, like, I was really into watching like our Alaskan swimmer, like crush it and win a gold medal. That was cool. I was really into watching our, our women's volleyball team is just fucking badass. Um, but my kids, like the dressage came on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were joking about this before the, the pod, but like normally kind of switch the channel or I like- Yeah, you make a Mitt Peacock. Romney joke. You yeah, on, yeah, yeah, Rafalka, you know. Yeah. But like my daughters, like could not get their brains around these giant dancing horses, you know? They're cool. And so suddenly 
it's a good example of how when you have kids, like your whole experience of sports and media changes, like I'm sitting there watching and kind of appreciate, I'm, I guess I, I'm inviting some shit here, but like just kind of watching my kids freak out because, and, and what's cool about it is it's part of what I love about the Olympics is like, there are people that like all they do is learn how to make like some horse dance. Yeah. Now, granted, I know this is kind of a privileged sport, but like just a, a touch. across the board, like volleyball is the same thing or water polo or all these things. Like the the amount of time that people have put into doing these totally. somewhat obscure things is very cool to me. And then like the number, watching volleyball, you just realize how many like six foot five to six foot seven men and women there are in the world who can just hammer a ball like a hundred miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. Well, I have to say too, I was kind of like, uh, I enjoyed watching the men's basketball, even though we lost. And don't at me, this is not a Trump comment, because I was kind of proud as an American, like that that everybody else has gotten so good at this game that kind of we created is kind of a, really a validation of we'll like that. it will take that, spin. like you know, like um, now. Granted, I I, I think they're going to figure it out. Like I I'm waiting to like you know the U.S team to find the other gear here yeah um, i bet they will too i i kind of like the weird sports like i i don't need to see i just watch the nba finals i don't need to see more basketball but like do you see any handball yeah, yeah you yeah, kind of like yeah. just leap into some area and gun the thing i watched a little rugby last night and i pissed a lot of people off by saying that the rules are incomprehensible i stand by that statement and the edible i took while drafting it <laughs> yeah. um but i admire how tough those people are they're just like I don't know. It's like football without pads. They're just crushing each other. It's, it's very impressive. We are at the point of the Olympics, though, where I'm like, okay, I've seen enough swimming, probably. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a little. I'm not. I can't do it. Yeah, anymore. I mean, there, there's a well, but the the Tunisian um, that was really yeah, cool. Yeah, I mean, like that. That's the kind of moment that can only happen at the Olympics, right? Where. I mean, same thing with like a, a, a swimmer from Alaska, right? Where there's like, I think one 50 meter pool in the whole state. But like for a Tunisian guy to to win, you know that everybody in Tunisia is like freaking out about that so in a good way. Everyone should check out this video. So he's an 18 year old Tunisian guy, uh, Ahmed Hafnoui. He won a surprise gold medal in the 400 meter freestyle. He had the slowest qualifying time of yeah. all eight people in his heat, but he managed to pull it out. And there's a, a viral video of his family back in Tunisia, basically like filming themselves, watching the race and they lose their mind. And it's like the most pure, awesome thing. Yeah. There was a viral video of, you know, uh, the people in Alaska watching Lydia Jacoby win, including like her classmates and everything, people like freaking out and then cuts to her parents and they're crying. And I'm kind of like, kind of tearing up. I'm kind of like, it, it actually, to go back to where we started, like made me so pissed about like Trump and this this culture war stuff entering yep. the Olympics. Cause I remember as a kid, like feeling like we were all backing these athletes. Can't, can't we just like all find unity in sports here? Like that's what the Olympics are supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be a, like a venue for your, your, your culture war. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know if people saw this Phoenix rally. Trump raised the women's soccer team losing to Sweden. He said it was because of wokeism. He got them all to boo them. It's just like, it's so hard for me to get over a president of the United States rooting against an Olympic team, rooting against America. And the sort of feeling of political impotence that comes from not immediately knowing that we can use that clip to bury his political career. Like in that yeah. in just world, that's what would happen. Well, and because like in a weird way, like I, like we're talking about Tunisia, which is obviously going through a bunch of shit right now, but like 
it makes me happy that other countries are so pumped too. You know, right. like I, I obviously want the U.S. athletes to win. I'm, I'm you know, usually rooting for them, obviously, unless like they're just not in the competition. But like the, I, I'm, I'm happy for the other countries when they're totally psyched, particularly if it's like a small, a small country. country. Like right? The Philippines, yeah. like Philippine yeah. weightlifter won the gold medal and it was like the best thing to happen to the country. To learn. Yeah. It's just cool. Yeah. I'm into it. I mean, let's go to a question I think some people might have, which is why the Russian team has such a weird name. The Rock. <laughs> the Rock. <laughs> and they can't use their country name, flag, or anthem. So the short answer is because they're cheaters. And never forget that. They're a bunch of cheaters. The Russia uh, Olympic Committee team, or The Rock, they're using that name because it's part of their punishment for using PEDs uh, and conspiring to cover up the evidence of that PED use at the Sochi Olympics. The penalty extends through the 2022 Winter Olympics as well. So these Russian athletes who weren't part of the doping uh, weren't subject to the suspension, can still participate, but just in this weird, confusing way. Ben, do you think this is, I don't know, to me, this doesn't seem like much of a punishment for like a bunch of people taking steroids in a systematic way and covering it up. I don't know. They're still basically competing. Yeah. I mean, and just so people get the fact that this was like a next level cheating shit, you know, like Putin as Bond villain kind of thing. You know, the Russians were hosting the Sochi Olympics. The Russians have like this kind of fixation in the Olympics. Obviously, Putin does himself. And yeah, a lot of athletes are, you know, doping. This was the most systemic thing. Like the Russian intelligence services were like brought into this scheme to like help, you know, falsify test results. Like this was like, you know, industrial scale doping. This wasn't just like a bunch of people were taking stuff. This was like, in, in a way... The athletes were not the guilty people because I, it seemed like they didn't have a choice. It was oh, like yeah. it was kind of like the the Russian authorities were like you must win. We will dope you and we will falsify results and and the FSB is going to be involved and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I on the one hand you don't want to punish athletes, but on the other hand you're right. Like apart from the fact that they have to play like Tchaikovsky instead of the <laughs> Russian national anthem. <laughs> And they have a weird name. There's not like that much of a punishment, you know? Uh, no, they got a cooler name. They're The Rock now. That's The Rock is, it's kind of ominous. It, it's very fitting the geopolitical moment that the Russians are there, even though they cheated, they're still allowed to participate. And they had this kind of scary name. And, you know, like, like yeah. I, I don't know. There's a similar dynamic happening with Taiwan which has to use the title uh, Chinese Taipei. So this dates back to an agreement they made with the International Olympic Committee in 1981 that lets Taiwan compete, but it skirts the issue of whether Taiwan is a sovereign nation. I do, I mean, how do you think that's going to play out in 2022? Although maybe Taiwan won't have any, um, when the the games are in China, the winter games, although I don't know if they have any winter athletes, we'll see. Well, I, 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 you know, I tell this story in the, um, and after the fall, which everybody should buy then, but uh, my book, which is one of the young Hong Kongers I talked to said that the first moment when she kind of began to freak out a bit was in the 2012 Olympics. Um, there was a Hong Kong kind of pop star who expressed support for like Hong Kong athletes who mm-hmm. were participating in the Olympics and got like trolled on an industrial scale by like millions of Chinese uh, yeah. internet users. And you know, it seemed like there was a state hand behind that, like it was kind of an information campaign. And she kind of had to apologize because kind of the message was, you won't be able to sell your records in China right, if right, you right. tell you. And it's like, 
this this infection of again sports with politics is really fucking annoying and why can't the taiwanese athletes just like participate as they would like to participate i'm sure they think of themselves as taiwanese like chinese taipei doesn't mean anything to anybody yeah know? i think it's uh, insulting to them yeah yeah the the other thing i'm just preemptively anxious about is what donald trump is going to tweet i guess he can't tweet put on his stupid blog about simone biles who pulled out of the gymnastics competition citing mental health issues. I also was reading more about her decision and ESPN had a pretty good article on it that was talking about how like the stuff she does is just so insanely hard that if you're not really like mentally fully there, you can really hurt yourself. And that might have been part of why she was shaken and didn't want to compete. I don't know. Yeah. So I've gone through a roller coaster of emotions since uh, my wife woke me up at uh, four o'clock in the morning. Oof. Because uh, she was a gymnast. I don't know if you know that. She was a competitive gymnast, that. right? So she's like deep on gymnastics, right? And um, and and so I see her, this vault go wrong. And, and, and Anne is like, that doesn't, that was way off. Like it wasn't just like a not a good vault. Like she was- Pulled out of it like kind of- She was not, she didn't do her move right in the right. air and that could have been dangerous. And she was even surprised that she was even able to land. And then she pulls out and I'm like, I thought about this all day. And I have a take, right? Give it to me. And I know not everybody needs a take on everything. You're right. Take. The Bo Burnham rule. Like oh, pe- people listen, can, I quote Bo Burnham not directed at you. I just directed it at Twitter. Here's my take, right? Because you made one point that is absolutely true, which is I'm already dreading the culture warification mm-hmm. of this. But I'm going to connect Patrick Ewing to Simone Biles, okay, here, which good. is a strange take. But I'm here for this journey. On this, right? Because this is a different cultural aspect in how it interacts with sports. I love Patrick Ewing growing up, right? Um, he was great basketball player. The Knicks were really good for like a decade. Mm-hmm. They made the finals a couple of times. He never won a ring. Right. And there's this new culture where like, if you don't win a ring, you're like a failure. Yeah. You know, like you, this kind of rings culture in the NBA, like Barkley, Ewing, Barkley, yeah. these people are total failures. Like, never mind that he had a great career. He's like a, you know, an all-star, a dream teamer, like, like gave a lot of joy to a lot of people, right? Simone Biles won this boatload of gold medals in Rio, right? And it's like there's a goat culture now, right? Where it's like, no, no, you have to, like, you have to just get better and better and better. And she was doing things because Anne's been telling me, like, that you're not kind of supposed, like, they're, like, you could break your neck if you don't land like her moves just the right way because they're so far and beyond what a normal human would do, right? Clearly, like, something in the culture was pushing this extraordinary athlete who's already like the best gymnast we've seen to just do stuff that like was well beyond like what like a human should be asked to do. What It wasn't like good enough like that she just win gold medals, right? And it puts her in a position where she knows if she's not on that day, she could really hurt herself, right? And so what, is she going to, knowing that she's not on and like there's something not right in terms of how she's feeling or how she's thinking, is she going to compete in multiple events where she could have like a, 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 like a really catastrophic injury. Like, how did we get to a point where she felt like she had to do those things? Yeah, you know? the, the, like, the, the carry Strug rejoinder that you're seeing, like, well, she competed with like a broken ankle. Well, is that good? Do we want little kids competing with, <laughs> with broken bones? Yeah, I don't the, know. The playing hurt thing is tricky, right? Because like, you know, like some of the iconic moments, right, are, um, are people playing hurt. I guess to my Ewing point, it's just like in listening to her give interviews leading into these Olympics. It didn't feel like there was a ton of joy in how perfect she felt like she had to be, you know? 
Um, and why can like why can't it be good enough? She's just like the best gymnast and can win gold medals. Like she clearly like felt pressured to ascend to some level that is probably beyond what any human being yeah. should even do, you know, like, uh, and so that, that's my weird take as I thought about this of just like, there's clearly something that was pressuring her to kind of go beyond like nobody else in the competition even tries to do anything right. like the things that she does. Like, couldn't she just do a routine and win a gold medal? Like it's not her fault. Uh, well, this I, isn't I, her fault. This I do is think like, she's pushing herself to do the biggest, baddest, hardest routines, right? She's a fucking super competitive person. But then everybody gets into it and it's like, wants to see her be like superhuman. And it's kind mm -hmm. of like, like, why can't we just see athletes be humans and win competitions? You know, yeah. like, I'm all for like shitting on highly paid professional athletes when fans feel like it. Cause that's kind of like part of the bargain, yeah. right? Like you get tons of money, you get adulation, you, and in, in return, people can say terrible things about you on Twitter. And that's kind of the deal now, even though it's a little bit gross. I do think the the gym, the Olympics are different to me. I mean, the women's gymnastics team has like kind of transcended the normal Olympian status, right? They're not like a person you hear yeah. about for a couple weeks every four years. They're like stars. They're celebrities. They're really cool, and rightly so. They're incredibly well, they're, they're, good. The, and and but what's but I th what I'm trying to yeah. say is I don't think they owe us any. Like you don't owe it to people to compete if you don't feel like it's safe for you. Uh, you know, I've like I, where I I like so I think people could be disappointed you can be sad you don't get to see her compete. But I think like, I'm just, I am preemptively worried about the culture war shit for the same reasons you are, that like someone's going to attack her for the mental health reasons or something. And it's going to create a conversation that is like deeply unhelpful. I mean, we'll, we'll step back and pot say the world is, you know, not the best venue and we're not the best, you know, cultural critics, but like- Disagree. The, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> the, 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 there's something about US women's gymnastics where- the perfection demanded of these young girls, because it starts in their girls, by an entity that refused to protect them against sexual predation. A disgusting right? organization. And, disgusting organization. And then, like, you know, insist on them be becoming goddesses every four years because they have to be the heroes in the face of Summer Olympics all the way from Mary Lou Retton, you know, is my earliest memory to, mm -hmm. to today. Like, there's just something off about that. I and agree. that's why I get it. Like, just I totally agree. something was kind of propelling this extraordinary athlete to feel like it wasn't good enough that she was the best gymnast, that she had to basically be like an astronaut, you know, yep. in, in, on the vault or, or on, you know, like that made it dangerous for her to perform on a day when she didn't have it, you know? And, and you know, she actually, in one of the articles I was reading, cited the fact that the Larry Nasser abuse revelations, who was the uh, trainer who abused so many of these young girls, and the fact that the organization didn't have her back, and yet she's like told to go out there and perform for them and do these yeah, risky yeah, yeah. things. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it, when I first heard about what happened, I, that didn't occur to me. Then I read more about what she said. I was like, well, of course. Like, why would she trust, give a shit about want to do anything for this organization. I'm not saying her country. Yeah. I'm yeah. saying this Olympic yeah. committee that didn't get their backs. And and the common thread to connect this all is like, we should have our athletes back. You know, like one last point to tie together some pods of the world threads here. Like if they let the athletes uh, use marijuana, which is legal, like might address, you know, like chill them out a little bit. Like I'd like to be seeing this sprinter. Um, Carrie Richardson. Yeah. I'd like to be seeing her, her running this week too, you know. You know, the weed thing is just so stupid. Yeah.
Just so stupid. I don't get it. I don't get it. Okay, Pot Save the World fans, uh, Ben and I are watching some of the women's 59-kilogram weightlifting. I really like the um, the way they set this up. Yeah. It's cool. It's like a dance floor. Yeah. And also, by the way, like, suddenly we're using the metric system. Uh, uh, yeah, you know? that part kills yeah. me. I can't do this math. What is 59 kilograms? It's heavy. Table? It's heavy. 130 LBs. I couldn't lift that. So is that the weight of the athlete? Like that Venezuelan is jacked. Got it. Got it. Weight class of the person lifting. We got a multiple Soviet republics in this. Uh, like Soviet Union used to just crush this. I remember when I was a kid, like oh, weightlifting. God, yeah. So we Imagine got, like, we got an doping. Armenian. We got a Turkmen. Like, yeah. See, this is amazing to me. This bread. <laughs> oh. Ooh. Oof. Ooh. Sorry, Zoe. Uh. So that was 191 pounds. She just didn't get it up. Oh, see, that uh, is so uh, scary to me. I, I have dislocated my that, left that, shoulder. That thing would just fall down on three top times. And kill yeah, me. like yeah. I would just be done. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how you do this. No, I, I, Yep, yep, yep. Oh yep. yeah. Oh yeah. Boom. Boom. Oh, mic drop. There we go. Does it matter if you move? These are the sports where you see videos of people just passing out midway <laughs> yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, oh my God, I would pull every muscle in my body if I even tried to pull that up off the ground. Oh, okay. Venezuela's amped. Whoa, she's amped. This one is for the glory of Maduro. (laughs) Nice nails. Solid green nails. Green nails, yeah. Pretty cool overall uniform colors. Yeah, everything about this is good. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not good. And she threw it up over her head and behind her, which terrified me. I don't know a lot about this sport, but I I don't think you're supposed to do that. No. Oh, Oh, God. Oh, like, I... I don't know how you do that. I I feel like my arms would fall off my body. It's hard to watch. Uh, okay, that's probably enough uh, uh, Olympic time. Thank you, listeners, for indulging yes, us. Yes, thank you. Uh, when we come back, you will hear my interview with Fadal Alariza. We're going to talk about what's going on in Tunisia, whether it's a coup, what the grievances are with the protesters uh, on the streets. So stick around for that. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious... 
You'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails Tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. I am very excited to welcome to the show Fadl Ariza. He's a journalist. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of Meshkal, which is an English and Arabic language news outlet covering Tunisia. And he's also a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. He's calling in from Tunis today. Uh, Fadl, thank you so much for doing the show. Sure, my pleasure. So on Sunday, uh, the Tunisian president suspended the legislature, fired the prime minister, bunch of other members of, of government. Can, can you give us sort of like the backstory here? Why did he do that? What was his reasoning? And, and how's the reaction been so far? Yeah, well, it depends on how far back you want to go. But um, the, that day, uh, there had been large protests. People had been calling for the, uh, the government to step down, for parliament to be frozen. Um, but there's been a, a sort of a, a health crisis that the, the government really has been on top of. Um, Tunisia has seen one of the, the worst death rates in the world per population uh, in recent weeks um, at a time when the government has, hasn't really done much. Uh, you've seen the prime minister actually uh, uh, at a, a luxury hotel, um, uh, you know, just two days after the worst death rate. Um, and that was leaked by an anti-corruption watchdog group. Um, was that like a done, sting operation? Did they like they found him at this luxury hotel after he just skipped town? The uh, well, very unfortunately, the tourism minister. I'm uh, sorry, not the tourism minister. The transportation minister did share it on his Instagram. <laughs> no. but, um, yeah. What well, but idiot. also the the this this group also um, I watch, which is the uh, the local chapter of Transparency International. Um, they get a lot of whistleblowers as well, so they had information I think in, in advance, and and they wanted to make a, a big deal of it. And uh, you know, there's I think there's in a democracy, there's, it's good to have accountability for. Um, you know, officials, particularly public officials who, who really can't afford to stay at this five-star hotel that they were at on their salaries. Um, so, I mean, that was, that was just one very blatant example. But, um, you know, for months we've seen um, the response to COVID has been uh, very punitive. And there's been lockdowns, um, you know, economic activity has slowed down. At the same time, you've seen the government raising prices of basic consumer goods as they're in the middle of negotiations with the IMF trying to maybe show the IMF that they're serious about um, uh, economic reforms. Um, so there's a, a, a series of factors that all played into this. Um, parliament itself has been extremely unpopular and getting less popular year after year. You've seen less and less people turning out for parliamentary elections. Uh, a lot of people just don't think that parliament really is the place where um, you know democratic politics is happening. Um, so this all filtered into to Kaisaid himself stepping in and saying that um, you know I'm going to interpret the constitution as this is an emergency situation um, and Article 80 of the constitution gives me the power to um, to do these things. Now, obviously, there's been people who disagreed with his interpretation. Uh, 
Um, and that's sort of being played out now uh, between different groups uh, of people. But I can tell you um, the initial response uh, was jubilation. Um, there were people who uh, felt, um, you know, this was long overdue. Uh, they had felt like their government had stopped listening to him, that there was not really um, uh, anything being done by the community government to, to take care of people's basic needs, whether that's healthcare, transportation, economically. Um, you know, you've just seen uh, uh, case after case over the last few years of that being the, being the case, and, and particularly with the, this last government. So, you know, in my neighborhood, I went out, it was way after curfew, and everyone went out 10, 15 minutes after the president's speech. There were thousands of people in, in, in my neighborhood you know, celebrating with fireworks and, um, uh, you know, they're shouting freedom and uh, honking their horns. Uh, so, and, and, you know, more than I've ever seen in, in, in the peak of rush hour. So that, that's just, just to give you a sense of the, the immediate reaction. Yeah. Well, it's good to know that um, idiot elite politicians who uh, get themselves in trouble on Instagram is kind of a universal thing at this point. So, so even before this this big decision over the weekend, my understanding is there were like a whole bunch of series of, of demonstrations and protests. What were those protests about? Was it similar, like you know, sort of economic and COVID based grievances, or did they have a different flavor? Like, how would you describe them? Um, I mean, we've we've covered all different kinds of protests um, in the last uh, uh, couple of years. Um, you know, you, we've had protests of people who, for example, um, are against police repression. There has been police repression of um, particularly poor neighborhoods. There was a, um, you know, just a, a month ago, the, um, there was a, a little over a month ago, there was a young man in the poor neighborhood of Seattle who died in police custody. Yeah. Um, and his family said that um, police had actually uh, beaten him on the head. He bled to death, and then they dumped him on the side of the road. Um, so, and and that's something that you, we've. It's not the first time that we've seen young men um, uh, killed by police. There's been uh, particularly uh, young men from poor neighborhoods or or poor regions of the country um, that we've 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 seen quite a few. There's there's even a couple websites uh, that have like tried to to, to list them all out, uh, and you rarely see police uh, facing justice for that. Um, so that's, you know, that's one example of, of some of the protests, but definitely economic issues. I mean, the fact that um, you had these sort of punitive um, lockdown measures, curfew, you've had a curfew for, in place um, for months at a time, um, hasn't really affected um, the spread of the infection rate of COVID. Uh, so ostensibly it was for that. But, um, you know, the, the net effect was that particularly, you know, cafe owners, people who work at cafes, you know, there's this, this sort of a knock on effect in the economy where people are, are, are really uh, suffering as a result of that, particularly as, you know, prices of basic goods are going up. You know, we've seen about seven, eight years of the, 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 the dinar, the, uh, the local currency uh, devaluing as well. So, so people aren't getting as much as, as, as they were while at the same time sort of wages are stagnating. So, so those are some of the economic issues, some of the, the police issues. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's <laughs> some, some neighborhoods feel completely cut off from other areas of Tunis because there's no public transportation and that's gotten worse and worse with, with increasing uh, population, but not an increasing investment in public transportation. So that's, you know, I, I could list uh, uh, several of them out for you, but that's just sort of a sense of, of, of the anger that's been building over time. Um, and I, I would also remember that, just remind uh, maybe listeners, you know, 2011, there was the revolution. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of resolution for the people who were um, who had gone out and done the re revolution, who were injured by security officials mm -hmm. at the time, right? There was about 300 people or more who were killed um, by security officials, and, and there wasn't really justice for them. There wasn't really state acknowledgement of them. A lot of them, uh, the families of these people who they call martyrs, the people who said, you know, these are the people who freed Tunisia from a dictatorship. 
um, their names weren't published, for example, in official gazettes. There was no sort of um, uh, follow-up on healthcare for people who'd been injured. Um, so th- that's another series of protests that we've seen as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear you describe the sort of, you know, sort of uh, a series of grievances of, of people in the streets for like, economic concerns, how they were treated by police, like things that are local and specific. Of course, the coverage in the United States is, was this a coup attempt? Uh, what does it mean for the the future of democracy in Tunisia, right, which was seen as this, this uh, one sort of good story that came out of the Arab Spring? Do you think those are important questions? And are they things that people are also talking about in Tunisia? Or is is the West just like navel gazing as we always do? Uh, not as much in Tunisia. Definitely not as much question about coup or not. Um, you know, there are people, I would say most of the people I've seen who are upset about um, what Kaisai did and calling it a coup. I would say first and foremost, the Anahda party, the Islamist party that was the biggest party in parliament. They've directly been disenfranchised by this decision saying, you know, you can't actually come into the parliament. Uh, we're suspending work for a month. They say a month, you know, obviously some people are skeptical about that, but that's what the president said. It's for a month. Um, you know, the, the, the head of the parliament, the uh, speaker of the parliament is the head of the Anata party, Rashid Ghanoushi. Um, so, you know, he he tried to get into the parliament. They wouldn't let him in. So definitely their party feels um, uh, uh, that this is a coup. Uh, a couple of the other parties that had been in a coalition supporting the government, they are saying this is a coup. Um, but among you know uh, uh, ordinary Tunisians, not really. Um, you know, and even other institutions, uh, we've seen um, institutions coming up with their response. People had to take some time. I think a lot of people were caught off guard by the president's decision. They were trying to figure out, okay, what's our position on this? Whether it's unions, uh, civil society groups. Um, you know, other institutions of the state. Um, and, you know, most of them haven't used the word coup because they're, they're, they still want to be able to, to say, um, you know, we understand that there's been a actually very popular decision that's been taken. Uh, so we want to respect the popular will, but we'd like to see it uh, within limits. We'd like to see constitutional um, uh, limitations to that. Um, and I think, you know, when I see the U.S. coverage about, you know, is this a coup, isn't this a coup, or or people who are just, you know, immediately jumping and saying it is a coup, I think a lot of them may be thinking of the Egypt scenario from 2013. Egypt's a place where, you know, the military is extremely embedded in society economically. Mm-hmm. You know, they have uh, uh, quite a lot of political power. In Tunisia, it's not quite the case. I mean, the military has traditionally been seen as uh, a, a lot more um, uh, neutral uh, politically. They're not nearly as hated as, as the police. The police are seen as, as much more of, of, of the repressive uh, arm of the former dictatorship. Um, and, and in many ways, even till today, you know, people still see police as, as quite repressive, but army sort of has this uh, um, aura about it of being a little bit more independent. You know, there there is, um, uh, you know, people from around the country are conscripted, uh, so people sort of do their time in, in the military. It's not necessarily seen as as, as being separate from the people uh, as much. And and the fact that Kaisai, the president, is not a military guy. I mean, mm-hmm. he's he's a constitutional law professor who um, spent his many years teaching as a law professor um, before he joined politics. Um, so that's another a factor. Now, I, you know, is it a coup or is it not a coup? I mean. You know, it's still an open question. I think, you know, depending on whether this is a, a, a something that happens for a, a limited time or not, you know, there's there's definitely valid critiques to, to be said, but it's not the main debate, I think, that's happening in Tunisia. Yeah, I know. Like in the Obama administration got kind of wrapped around the axle uh, on this specific question about Egypt, because it, it, you know, if it is a coup, it does trigger uh, a bunch of, you know, uh, means that cut off our ability to provide military assistance and other things. So it, it is a relevant question in Washington, although uh, clearly not the one you know that's being talked about most on the streets. Th- there's also, I mean, while we're talking about sort of the international 
role if there if there is or should be one. I've been reading a lot of reporting about what, if any, role foreign governments might play in in help resolve the situation or push and prod in one direction, right? There's talk about the U.S. doing stuff. Uh, I think Tony Blinken made a call yesterday, the Secretary of State, the Saudis, the UAE, Turkey, Egypt. Uh, do you feel like countries are kind of moving in, taking sides and, and, and you know, pushing an agenda? And, you know, is that welcomed, not welcomed? Like, what, what's the what's the response to that? Um, I think it's it's unavoidable. I mean, Tunisia is a small country. And so and particularly since, you know, the symbolic power of uh, a democracy in uh, an Arab country, um, you know, this is something that particularly counter revolutionary forces after the 2011 uh, Arab Spring uprisings detested, right? I mean, there's, there's, whether it's uh, Gulf countries that fear themselves to, to, to see sort of democratic uh, movement, uh, there's certainly maybe co-ideologies uh, among Turkey and the Anatta party uh, from the sort of political Islam trajectory that they both uh, are, are on. So, you know, we're seeing statements, um, but we're not seeing intervention so far. I wouldn't be surprised if the president himself had uh, reached out to um, Tunisia's uh, regional allies, maybe even further apart to, to let them know what you know he, he might take as a decision. I think that would probably be sort of uh, uh, wise from from a from a real politic perspective. But I I would be a little bit skeptical to think that there's intervention at this moment, and I don't I, I don't see any intervention maybe um, or, or or you know from the U.S., from the Gulf, from, from Europe as, as doing any good in this moment in Tunisia right now. I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly things that people could do, uh, you know, other countries could do. I mean, for example, you know, the COVID crisis really does require extra help at this moment. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an easy way that I think, you know, countries can be seen as, as helping Tunisia at this moment because it's, it's a far worse and deadlier uh, uh, situation than the political crisis, uh, given um, the, the death rate, given the lack of basic materials, uh, given even still a lack of vaccines, despite um, some new donations. Uh, you know, we talked uh, to the WHO uh, representative in Tunisia saying, actually, Tunisia has the capacity to make vaccines. They have the infrastructure to do it, you know, if there was technology transfer. So, you know, those are some of the things that I think definitely the international community could be helping on without necessarily jumping into the politics um, just yet when, you know, Tunisians themselves are still trying to figure out what does this mean, where to go. Um, you know, the institutions, um, there is quite a long history of like independent institutions. So even if this president concentrates a lot of power around himself, you know, he's not going to be able to, um, you know, wipe out uh, all of civil society groups, all of the unions, all of the student groups who are uh, very, very jealous of their independence and have had 10 years to really experience what, um, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of the press are like, you know, that's not going to go away without a fight. Um, so I think a lot of people are saying, let's just wait and see. Yeah, that's good advice. Less politics, more uh, Pfizer shipments. How about that? Yeah. You mentioned freedom of the press. I saw the Tunisian police had raided Al Jazeera's office, took some of their equipment reportedly. Was that a specific attack on Al Jazeera, part of a broader crackdown on the media? Do you know? Uh, it's hard to tell. Um, you know, I would think it's quite plausible that um, because Al Jazeera had been getting quite a big platform to uh, Anahda party and to Rashid Ghanoushi, um, that this is not disconnected <laughs> from trying to make sure that there's one narrative coming um, uh, from, you know, about what's happening, or at least not Nahda's narrative, that Nahda's narrative doesn't win out. That may also be like that there was fears of maybe um, if Nahda were to mobilize into the streets 
um, that there could be some violence in the streets. You know, we, we saw a little bit of violence uh, yesterday in front of the parliament very early in the morning. Uh, we saw like some some thro- stone throwing between um, Anata supporters who had gathered there and some pro Kais uh, Syed, the president's supporters who had gathered there. But it was just around parliament. It wasn't uh, sort of spread uh, further than that. So it, it may be that that's the case. But of course, you know, me as a journalist, I'm also very worried about freedom of the press or even, even Al Jazeera, whether I agree or disagree with uh, uh, what Al Jazeera Arabic is doing, which, you know, to, to, to be blunt about Al Jazeera Arabic has a much stronger political line than Al Jazeera English, particularly mm-hmm. in the region. Yeah. But regardless, you know, the, 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 the National Journalist Syndicate, which is in, in no ways uh, Islamist or friendly with Nata, um, you know, they condemned it. And they said, you know, we will also defend um, the rights of, of journalists. We don't think that this is an appropriate way uh, to deal with journalists. And, and I think that's also the, the journalists themselves sort of stretching their muscles uh, in case they have to uh, find themselves in opposition towards the, the president now that he's, he's gathered powers as well. Uh, so, yeah, definitely something to, to watch out with. But I, I would say attacks on the press did not uh, not begin with the uh, the rating of the Al Jazeera Arabic. Unfortunately, that we've you know we've seen quite a lot of um, attacks on on journalists. We've quite seen the the detention and and arrests and prosecution of bloggers far far more than journalists. Uh, perhaps they have less of a um, immunity than journalists who you know have quite a good uh, a union and, and quite a good network and obviously um, you know networks abroad as well to sort of raise the alarm when they do find themselves at the mercy of the authorities. Uh, but bloggers, people who just blog on Facebook but happen to be blogging about um, you know things that whistleblowers in different departments, different ministries have told them about uh, different corruption allegations. Uh, we've seen several of them um, you know arrested and detained, and, and you know human rights organizations have written uh, good reports on on that. And that's not something new. So uh, you know certainly let's be concerned about uh, freedom of the press in Tunisia. But it's it's not a new thing. I think it's something that even even in in, in a democracy, even with a functioning or maybe partly functioning or or even dysfunctioning parliamentary system, these things are, are things that we should all be vigilant vigilant about. Good advice. Uh, speaking of supporting the press, where can listeners find your work, support your work, find you on Twitter? Give them all your uh, give them all your handles. Sure. Yeah, we, we we're writing at mishkel.org, which is uh, both English and Arabic. We're doing uh, even actually more English than, than Arabic uh, content. We're trying to fill a void with uh, um, some of the, the you know just very professional journalism, talking to all sides, having them all in one article. Something that we're not seeing necessarily in in, in even the Arabic and, and French press here. So uh, yeah. If you want to learn more, we have a, you know, please go through our back catalog and, and we have, you know, coverage of all different types of things, whether whatever sector you're looking at in Tunisia. Cool. Well, Fadal, thank you so much. This was incredibly helpful for me personally in understanding what's going on. And I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for, for the good questions. I, I enjoyed it. Talk to you soon. Thanks again to Fadal for joining the show. Uh, thanks to the, uh, Olympics for giving us a lot to talk about. Who should yeah. we be thanking? Um, Patrick Ewing. Uh, and I'll say one thing. He also brought a lot of love to Dan Pfeiffer, to Joy to Dan's life as yeah. a Georgetown guy. And, and just to like, cause this occurred to me after the fact, Ewing, because of this rings culture thing, tore his Achilles mm. when he kept playing hurt in the Eastern Conference finals in the Knicks champ, you know, title run where they didn't make it because like he felt like he had to be out there, yeah, right? In a way, that, so like it's kind of like that, that's, there you go. The, you know? the obligation to play hurt when you were like just deeply wounded or wounded is the wrong word, deeply injured or yeah. only able to be out there because of injections and pills, that is yeah. a really troubling Well, yeah, a lot thing. of, lot of the NFL. like there's an opioid problem in the NFL. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Give them weed. It's healthier than giving them Percocet. Sure is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to you guys next week.
Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. 